Welcome to QTalks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. I'm Thomas. And I'm Shreya, and we're your hosts for QTalks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not so typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. This week on QTalks, we are talking to James Hawkins, co-founder of PostHoc, an open source product analytics software company, which recently went through Y Combinator and has raised a $3 million seed round. Hi, James. Hey, Thomas. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you. Maybe to start off with, can you tell us about your background? Sure. Yeah, so I'm James Hawkins. Uh, I did uh, economics at Cambridge quite badly um, in 2007 to 2010. Um, spent a couple of years well, trying to be a professional cyclist. Um, crashed one too many times and then kind of ended up in the world of startups. Um, I had like a spell as a head of engineering, uh, bootstrapped online marketing company to like around $5 million a year, I guess. Uh, and then became a head of sales at another startup in London, then went to YC, created my own company called Postog, um, providing open source analytics. Uh, and that's kind of where I am today, I guess. So that's at a really high level. I'm happy to like dig into any of those areas. But in short, I guess I've like always kind of worked for smaller companies or sort of run my own thing uh, since I left about 10 years ago. Um, and I've had an absolutely great time doing that so far. Yeah, that, that sounds amazing. They're all quite different things that you've been doing. So from economics to engineering, then on to uh, the marketing software side. Um, how did you make some of those leaps? Sure. Yeah. So I guess um, I've, I'm like kind of technical, but not super technical, basically. Um, so like economics kind of fitted that remit fairly well. Um, I think with uh, like I think when I started off, I just was always kind of into computers when I was growing up. Uh, I can fondly remember the first time I learned how to do formulae properly in Excel um, and had always been like building websites and stuff in school. So afterwards, uh, I kind of, I worked for an online marketing, I sort of bootstrapped an online marketing company where I learned a lot about not just kind of building websites, but how do you kind of make money from them? How do you, uh, and like, how do you deal with like running a business and management and stuff? Um, but I've kind of treated a lot of that as an engineering problem. So I think, although, you know, people often kind of box themselves as like, I'm either a developer or a salesy kind of person. Um, I really strongly believe you can be both and you can move from one to the other. It's just quite unusual, uh, to see people do that. And I think like, if I were going to walk into any organization, um, and speaking to a developer about like, how do you do a better job in your career? I would strongly like advise you like you should go talk to salespeople and hang out with them um, and go talk to customers because they're going to make you better at your technical job regardless. So yeah, it's always worth escaping from your mum's basement, basically, <laughs> if you're a bit technical. Um, so I've tried quite hard to do that. No, that, that's great, James. Uh, and maybe for some of the listeners who are currently students or starting their careers, how would you recommend people going about going into some of these different fields if you have a different background. So say you're an economics student, how do you build a credible case to then become involved in an engineering team? Or how do you then become involved in a, in a sales team if, if that's uh, such a credible and important um, 
uh, area to gain some expertise, as you said? Sure. Yeah, I think my number one thing in this area is just be proactive. Um, I think it's really, really easy to accidentally become a bit of a lemming in your career, um, which sounds kind of harsh, but I think it's quite sad when it happens where uh, like a company at the end of the day is just a group of people um, with probably a bunch of money. You can kind of do what you want, like you'll get told what you're supposed to focus on and so on. I've just kind of like done the stuff that I wanted to do. So if you know, I've worked for smaller companies, which probably has made that quite a lot easier. Um, so like the most extreme example I have of this is the first place I worked, I was kind of managing our engineering at a small company, but I ended up building a lot of stuff that was quite commercial. I like learned a lot of the, I interacted with our customers a lot during that time. Um, when I then moved to another company, um, I started off, I was supposed to run the marketing team because it was a lot of like online marketing. So it was quite digital and quite technical. Uh, but I just got on really well with the founder. Um, I picked up a few sort of projects with customers and then I wound up getting given like a VP of sales job um, and ended up running a big enterprise sales team doing like $15 million a year kind of contracts and stuff for software. And I just found that having a bit of a technical background selling software gave me a huge advantage because like I understand what an API is. I'm happy talking about like databases and our infrastructure and stuff. So I think the way I've moved around quite a bit is I've just sort of picked up stuff that I thought looked interesting and that I wanted to get involved in. Um, I didn't really get put into any of those roles. So yeah, I think it's just, you can sort of drive, you can, you have a lot more control than you would think you have over the kind of things you work on, but you just need to kind of do stuff and then ask for forgiveness after the fact. That's really interesting. Just to follow up on that, what has been your experience then of being a member of a small company or a startup versus um, being one of the founding members? Sure. So I knew, I always knew that I wanted to be um, a member of the founding team, but I felt that I didn't have the experience to get it right the first time around. So I kind of always thought of when I worked um you know, like in a management kind of role or individual contributor role, um, I just sort of treated that as a way of learning. Um, and that's why I think I, that's pro that probably explains a bit about why I moved around quite a bit, because I kind of wanted to learn how different parts of the company work. Um, and you can learn a lot about what to do and what not to do. I think one of the interesting things is when you look at um, the company that Postog were, the company that I founded with uh, my co-founder, Tim, we did the most recent Y Combinator batch in kind of January this year. There's a really broad mix of other founders there. There's like 500 of them because there are like 250 companies and most of them have two co-founders. And one of the things that really stood out is some people there have backgrounds where they've worked at companies that have extremely strong product market fit. And it sounds really impressive that someone's worked at Google or Facebook or Apple, and they would have learned a bunch of stuff from seeing how like some of the you know biggest and brightest companies in the world are run but i think you can learn an awful an awfully large amount by working for companies that don't have strong product market fit or are struggling or failing or making mistakes um, and like i personally think you can actually learn quite a lot more by doing that so i think it's really valuable if you want to be a founder um but you maybe don't have total confidence yet just like work for a couple of smaller companies make sure you get somewhere like just work extremely hard as if you are a founder you'll get treated like one anyway. And it means that when you do come around to doing your own thing, um, you're going to be able to like nail it. And it's just really satisfying trying to, you know, seeing where you've made mistakes before and going back through and trying to get it right kind of second time around. Now, you've already mentioned post hoc. 
which of course begs the question, what does post hoc do and how can you explain that to a non-specialist? Sure. So we basically help software teams understand who is using their software and if they're coming back um, and where they're dropping off or getting confused. Um, that's like the key thing we can help people with. The second thing that's important is we're fully open source. So um, to someone who's not a developer, that basically means you can access all of our code online for free if you want to. So you can choose to download it. You could even choose to download it and create a competitor to us um, if you wanted to, um, which sounds kind of counterintuitive, but it's uh, that combination of being open source and helping developers understand their users better um, has proved really powerful for us um, in terms of growing quickly. Uh, since we started. And maybe you can set the scene for us a little bit more. How did PostHog come about? Um, what have been some of the major milestones and where are you at now? Sure. So we, I started working with my co-founder, Tim. Um, we set off to do our own thing in August 2019. And we had a couple of ideas. Um, the whole way through my career, I'd kind of written down problems as I came across them. Whenever I got frustrated with a piece of software or there's something that I couldn't solve, um, I just put them into like a big Google Doc and I had pages and pages of stuff. And the majority of them are really weird or stupid or whatever. Um, but there are a couple of ideas that I kind of kept coming back to. Tim and I worked on the first couple of things that I had written out um, and they just didn't really go anywhere. Like it just felt like a real uphill struggle to get any users. It was, we got like, we started making some money, but found life extremely tough. Along the way though, one of the things we learned from like launching two or three like mini companies trying to get stuff to work um, was we found it extremely hard to track user behavior. There are kind of all these um, SaaS, like software as a service companies out there that help you do this. But from a developer's perspective, they're just not very friendly. Like you have to send all your user data to some other company out in their cloud, which felt like kind of not right from a privacy perspective. And we just wanted ownership of that kind of information. The other thing is if you integrate your user data with a cloud service that's owned by someone else, um, you're kind of really locked in, like they've got all your stuff. Um, so we wanted more control over our own data. And we felt that building an open source version of those pre-existing tools would have allowed us to have much more control, more flexibility, and it would allow us to go kind of into production more easily with bigger companies because they don't have to go through vendor risk management, information security kind of processes because they can just host everything themselves. So it was kind of like a bit of a bugbear where we just wanted this ourselves from trying to put a couple of other companies first. Um, so we said, hey, we're going to spend four weeks. We're just going to build a basic version of this. We'll put it on the internet on Hacker News, which is like a big developer kind of forum. And we'll just see if anyone cares. Uh, and that's what we did. We just worked really, really hard, got it out there. And then almost immediately, we got hundreds and hundreds of users signed up and started using it. And then that helped us know kind of where to what's you know the features to work on next and so on can i just follow up um maybe to aid my understanding and those listeners that are not necessarily experts in this space can you give me a use case example of um of a client that might use uh, what you provide one of the companies that's using us they are an electronics kind of marketplace so if you're an electronics engineer you can go on their website and you can order like really specific electronics components. And so the company that runs this big marketplace, they have loads and loads of traffic, like hundreds of thousands of visitors every day. What they wanted to do is understand, are those visitors coming back? Uh, where are those 
you know, like what's our attention like, it, you know, as an indicator of is our product any good? The other thing they want to understand is when users sign up and create an account, you know, what fraction of them drop out, which users are dropping out and why? We can help them kind of instantly just understand exactly what all of their users are doing. So we can give them like a full user history for all of the users that they've got. We can automatically track every click um, and every interaction on their website. And then the final thing is we let them host all of that kind of information themselves. So it doesn't mean that data is quite, um, you know, it's relatively invasive. It is like individual user data. But the cool thing about what PostalGuards is you can host everything yourself. So none of that data needs to leave their system. Um, they can just create like nice visualizations and stuff super simply. And this all happens, you know, after like a 30 second kind of setup process. So I guess that's like one example of how um, like a typical kind of startup might be using us. Okay, great. And you've mentioned a few times this open source approach that you you guys have taken. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and what drove your decision to go via that approach? Sure. Yeah, this has been like the real highlight of what we're working on. So um, I guess like over the last five years or so, or uh, it's been extremely popular in the kind of VC world to invest in B2B um, software where you know, like if the value proposition is kind of obvious, you'd have thought that it's going to be easy to sell one day or another. Uh, and businesses are supposedly more rational than consumers. So I guess that all kind of makes sense. All of these companies have set up as software as a service. So traditionally, everyone has kind of offered like, hey, pay me $10 a month to use my software. I'll host it for you. You just log in and use it. I think the thing that I think the trend that's starting to appear is all of these kind of software as a service companies, I think a lot of them can get disrupted by open source software. Open source software means that um, you're not kind of just offering your service where you just charge people monthly. You're saying to them, hey, like here's our entire code base. You can modify this yourself. You have full access to it. You can install it yourself and you can also use it for free. Um, the reason that that sounds like, well, how are you going to make any money doing it? Um, but I can, you know, like it's more appealing to an individual developer because it's just more powerful, more flexible, more transparent and free. The challenge is then how do you kind of build a business around kind of giving away software for free instead? The This is starting to become more established. There are basically three models that people follow for open source. The first one is you just charge for services. So you say to like bigger companies, hey, do you want to use like our open source software? Um, we'll set it up for you. We'll maintain it for you. We'll keep it updated. We'll give you um, promises that it will stay up and running 99.9% .9 of the time or whatever. Um, Red Hat is probably the biggest example of that by far. But it's not super appealing from an investor perspective because you have to have a whole load of people running around like helping one customer at a time. So there aren't very good margins. The two models that are left are charging for hosted, where you basically say, hey, you can install our software for free yourself. But if you don't want the hassle, we'll provide it to you as a service so you can then just like log in to app.postdog.com and use it that works pretty well um there is some risk from cloud companies competing with you so like amazon web services have set up like a whole bunch of like they provide it's too detailed maybe for this talk but like they have created um there's like an open source company called mongodb it's a database they generate their own revenue by saying hey you can install a database for free yourself or we'll charge you to host it for you um, Amazon Web Services have just come in and started offering MongoDB as a hosted service themselves directly, cutting out MongoDB entirely and probably making much more money than MongoDB themselves made. Um, it's kind of worked out okay, I'm sure, for both, um, but you can get like a lot of competition. The third model for open source is 
something called Open Core. This a good example of this is GitLab. There are what it means is you create like an open source um, project, and you have to build something valuable enough to get like thousands of users to build a community around the project. But then you can just build like another version of your software, which has better features designed, well, not better, but features designed for managers or executives or people who've got budgets. So they can start off on the free version of the software. They can install it really easily because there's less kind of risk management involved. And then you can kind of say, hey, like if you want to pay like $100,000 a year or whatever it might be, and there are all these cool features that will help you with like user permissions. Um, it's maybe security features, maybe stuff around scalability, for example. Um, so that kind of open core model is what we're shooting for. Um, we felt it made the most sense for our company in particular, but it's become like a lot, it's been starting to become more established um, as a kind of way of working. And the reason you end up being able to compete with these traditional like SaaS companies is it's easier to get going with and it's more kind of like product led. You can start off for free. You could potentially stay using the free version forever. Um, and it's just a little bit friendlier and it's kind of better suited to developers in my opinion. Hmm. This is really interesting. I think you often hear one side of the coin, so like the SaaS type companies. Um, and it's so interesting to hear from your side of things that actually open source is becoming bigger and there are all these possibilities out there. So that's really interesting. I wanted to follow up. You mentioned about investors. Um, so I understand that you recently raised a $3 million round. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about what you learned during that fundraising process, and especially in particular, how investors reacted to your open source approach versus um, the other types of approaches. Sure. Yeah, no problem. So basically, we found that with an open source approach, it was quite polarizing when we spoke to investors, which I'd argue is a good thing. It's kind of what you want. Like you want people to either say, no, no way, this doesn't look like interesting to me. I don't think you'll build a business around this. Or alternatively, like this is the best thing ever. I believe this will kind of land and you can disrupt these big markets that already exist. Um, so we the process of fundraising, I guess the things we learned are for a seed round, you don't really need for open source stuff you don't like the pitch isn't really kind of like hey we have all this revenue yet like you've got to build this like big project and get all these people around the world writing code for you for free because they just want to use your stuff so we focus much more heavily on look we don't care at all about revenue at this stage of our life like we need to get a huge kind of ubiquitous user base in the developer community first then we'll be able to work out what features we'll, we'll build next that'll be paid. But if we try and like build a paid version and a free version all at the same time with our tiny little team, like we're just not going to nail it. And we're kind of running the risk of like half finishing everything. So we started getting like quite opinionated ourselves on the best way of doing this. So have a strong opinion with, on like how you're going to nail things was something that I really took from that process. The second thing was like, think about the investors that you're talking with quite carefully. We had a lot of advice to just like speak to everyone at the same time. That helped us learn, certainly, like which kind of people were a good fit for us and which weren't. But if I went back into that process again, I would uh, much more kind of focus on people who've already invested in open source companies, because I think there's like a subset of investors who really get the space. And as soon as we spoke to people like that, they were kind of biting our hands off to invest, biting our arms off to invest. Um, so uh, we found it was a case of the reason you're getting rejected may not be there's something wrong with your business. It might be that the investor doesn't get the kind of business that you're working on if it's a different model to something that's kind of more mainstream. So those are like the main things, I guess. Um, I think the other third thing really was 
just be confident, um, be jazzed, um, and try and get everything on standardized paperwork. The uh, a lot of good investors are willing to like we just did everything on safes for our seed round. There are a standard piece of paperwork that exists to raise money early on. We accepted no weird terms from anyone at all, and that's really helping us later on. Like the as we do future rounds, it kind of means that we haven't got like weird terminology in our seed investment that's going to cause us problems. So I'd heavily recommend like just put everything onto safes, um, keep everything standard, be assertive over the valuation that you're raising at. Um, so those are probably like the three main things. Oh, and I'd also add like uh, we moved to California to do our raise and to start the company. Um, I think that made a huge difference, like a really vast difference to our ability to raise quite a lot of money really quickly. Yeah, you you already mentioned California now, uh, and, and I think for our listeners, it would be really interesting maybe to go back to that point during your journey because I understand at the very early stages um, of post hoc, you actually decided to uh, take up an invitation from Y Combinator. So can I, can you tell us about how that came about? Sure. Yeah. So uh, Y Combinator is a quite well known sort of startup accelerator. Um, they take on board something like 250 companies uh, twice a year. They invest, uh, I can't remember, I think they might have slightly changed it. It's around $150,000 for 7% of your company. They kind of, it's a lot like some of the stuff you would see at Cambridge. You get kind of regular, not supervisions, but uh, office hours, they call them, with partners. So they'll, they'll put you in a group with maybe eight other companies that are kind of similar to you, hopefully. And with maybe four or five partners who are all kind of successful founders before, and they're all really well connected in the valley, they then just basically keep you accountable for making a ton of progress each week. They don't really care if you're failing. They just care that you tried something out and learned something from it every single time you go and speak to them. The application process is incredibly simple. It is a form that you submit online, and that's it. It is the kind of thing you can probably do. You're probably going to do. You're probably doing a better job of it if you if you do about an hour's work in total and then submit the form rather than spend like two weeks doing it. So uh, for us, it was just kind of um, a real shot in the dark. We had no idea if we'd get accepted. There's like this whole like world of mysticism around this program. It is quite well known that it's like the rejection rate is really high. Um, and we were worried that we wouldn't get in. We're like, well, there's a form online, but we probably need to like hustle and buy people dinner and try and like socialize our way into this thing, a bit like doing enterprise sales or something. But we decided not to. We just followed the instructions, did the form. Like neither, like Tim and I have both like, we have got startup experience, but neither of us has sold a company for like hundreds of millions of dollars before. We didn't have um, tens of thousands of users or anything like that. Like a lot of the people doing it were just like really bright, smart, got a lot of work done really fast with like kind of easy to, ex with ideas that they could explain really well to kind of like technical executives who are judging you. So um, yeah, the application process, super simple. I would heavily, heavily, heavily recommend it. And then they kind of just coach you through getting from nothing to your seed round. And then they give you like, we're still getting a lot of advice from them later on. And I can, they're sort of launching more and more stuff for like series A, series B kind of growth programs and so on. So yeah, it's cool. It's like, Uh, the program itself is geared around you turn up, you work for three months, make as much progress as you can on your idea. And then you do a big demo day presentation where they get like 1200 investors show up to it and you pitch for, uh, I think two minutes is how it's supposed to be. 
before COVID. Um, because of COVID, it became you put a single PowerPoint slide up on a website, and then investors can give you a thumbs up if they like it, and then you can go book meetings, and that gives you some kind of pipeline to raise money from. Uh, so it kind of, I think a lot of investors don't like it. It kind of puts them under a lot of pressure because they know that you're talking to everyone at the same time. Um, but from a founder perspective, it just gives you, it's kind of designed to give you as much leverage as possible. And then did that uh, spur you on to relocate to California to then do the seed round investment? Yeah, so they force you to, uh, at the, I imagine when COVID uh, hopefully eventually goes, uh, they force you to move there. Um, and the reason for that is, I think it's a signaling thing. Like if you're willing to uproot your life and move to California, you know, you're kind of, you're, you've got to be quite dedicated to do that already. Um, the reasons I think that really mattered to us were one of the starting, there's a guy called Michael Siebel, who's the current president of it. He founded Twitch, um, which is a huge like video game streaming platform. At the, like the very first talk he kind of said is like, this is one of the, this is probably like the time of your life where it's socially acceptable just to work all the time for three months because it's a sprint and it's temporary and you've moved all the way out here to do this thing. And that's exactly kind of what happened. Like it just meant that we had three months where we were completely focused on this one thing. It reminded me a lot of when we used to do training camps in cycling and so on. And but for your startup and that level of focus meant we got tons of work done. Um, and we made like, it just kind of gave us that initial momentum when early on it's so hard to get anyone to use your thing. It kind of forced us to make it work. So that was really powerful. Second thing was the network out there is quite strong. Like it kind of means that you can just go meet all these cool people in real life. Um, we met loads of other open source founders and they were all really friendly. Like we kind of, you know, we're reaching out to people who are running multi, some of them are multi-billion dollar companies. Um, and I would just like, would ask for, like just literally emailed them cold saying, hey, like we're doing, we're trying to do an open source company. We're doing this program. Would you mind like if I picked your brains for half an hour on like these couple of random, but quite specific topics? And I think every single one of them, more or less, or at least like 90% of them said yes. And that just helped us understand like the business models that are available to us uh, with this approach. It was just a really friendly community. And then on the investor side, you know, those first people we met for advice helped connect us later to investors who are going to be a good fit for us. How does it look now for you based between the UK and the US? How, do, how does that work? Yeah, we're kind of, we're remote first. So we literally don't have an office. I can remember walking up the hill back to our house in San Francisco, um, probably right at the end of February, talking to my co-founder saying, hey, like maybe we think, like we're kind of starting to think that if you're running quite an engineering focused company, like our tool is used by developers and it's built by them. We just really wanted to build like a strong engineering culture. And we felt that working remote first for developers is really powerful because you don't get interrupted all the time. So it allows people to do quite deep work uh, without getting too distracted. We have a strong kind of written culture and everything we do is open source too. So it's all going kind of into the public. We felt that working remotely would force us to be better at writing stuff down, which would help the kind of community grow. So we've really, really been able to work, make working remotely full-time our kind of way of being. And like, we're not going to change that now. So we'll permanently be like this. It's meant we've been able to hire people from, like we've got people in like San Francisco, New York, Estonia, Belgium, um, Mexico City, London, um, like we've got a kind of really diverse team from nationality perspective, and we're able to hire like exceptionally strong people um, in certain markets. Like we've got lots of like ex CTO people who are running big engineering teams, of, like thirty engineers who are now individual contributors again because we can afford to pay them really well relative to what they would have been earning anyway. And it's 
like and then you get all this extra experience and people who are just really passionate about coding and kind of wanted to be doing that in the first place so it's kind of been a like really wonderful journey working remote first with a kind of developer focused kind of company being remote first i guess you guys are quite an inspiration to those companies that have had to transition to working remotely um what what i guess would be some of your advice to how as to how to make it work yeah i, I think written writing stuff down is key um it, you need to have as little asynchronous communication as possible uh otherwise like people just aren't in the loop we've written out a public handbook so you can like literally you as someone who's not an employee of our company can go onto our website you can look up like our expenses policy you can even suggest changes to our policies if you want to we found that's worked really well um it's just kind of meant that when we onboard people they can they just have all the information that they need we don't need to kind of sit next to them and walk them through everything because it's just kind of all documented properly on the web the downside is that i think that can seem quite robotic at times um, some people, I think it probably doesn't suit very well personality-wise. Like, you need to be a little bit more self-motivated um, to work when you don't have, like, the buzz of all your colleagues, you know, taking out coffees and lunches and stuff around you or coming back into the office. Um, and we've just sort of experimented with a few ways of trying to make sure that we actually feel like we know each other properly. One of the really cool things that we've started doing is each Friday, uh, someone gives their life story for an hour. So we'll have, like, random developer or a designer, whoever it might be. Um, we'll kind of start with like a whole bunch of photos from their childhood all the way through to like what they're up to now um and it sounds like really cheesy but it's actually like by far one of my favorite parts of the week it's just super relaxing you can get you can just ask like you can just learn about like we have one developer who uh was in estonia when it was part of the soviet union um you can kind of learn like what life was like doing that you know he's got stories of like parachuting um like one weekend and it all going horribly wrong and crash landing into a forest and stuff so um you have to i guess you have to like be quite proactive over making sure that you understand the people you're working with and kind of where they're coming from um so that's probably the one, the one like flip side but writing stuff down is really key and it builds quite a disciplined environment so james you've already um mentioned a few times that you are a keen cyclist um which raises for me the question Are there or have there been any lessons you took from your time as a dedicated racer to your startup? Sure. Yeah, I definitely think it has influenced my thinking quite a lot. Um, I think probably the first thing is it's just kind of correlation rather than causation. Like you don't have to done like a load of sport to be successful doing this stuff. Um, but I think the thing that uh, it's, I think a lot of the mindset is the same. Like cycling is a sport where you have to go out and ride for four or five, six hours in the rain um, if you want to do it seriously. So you're really having to push yourself um, individually to do things. And when you're, if you're trying to co-found a company, like you're going to have to like do all these like super lame jobs sometimes um, and you just need to do them. There's no one really telling you, I mean, you have bosses, like you have investors, you have your own team, um, but you need to like take ownership and control and do things yourself a lot. So I think it's probably helped with that mentality. I think the second thing is the perspective that doing endurance sport can give you. When you're like, I know Thomas, you're also a cyclist. It can teach you um, so much about kind of what hard work is and how much you can really push yourself outside of your comfort zone. Um, like if you're riding back from, like if you've been riding in the mountains on a kind of cold day or something, and you've got that last massive climb you need to get up. When you sit at your desk writing code, sending emails, whatever, it just gives you perspective over how hard you really can work. 
Um, and I think it just helps kind of put things in perspective sometimes that even if it feels hard running a company, like it's a little bit like playing video games at times, it's not too bad. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think that, uh, I think that kind of mentality side of it is quite powerful, but I don't think it's a prerequisite to being successful at all. Some, some really interesting thoughts. Thanks so much, James. What a fantastic journey it has been. And we wish you all the best for the, the road that lies ahead. Yeah, thanks ever so much. Thanks for having me, uh, Sharon and Thomas. Thank you very much. Thanks very much again to James for joining us on Q Talks. This podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. And we'd also like to say a big thank you to the team at QTech who have all been working hard behind the scenes. Thank you very much for listening. And please do go ahead and rate us or leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme, or tell us about your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks.